Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Professor of Organisational Psychology and Change at Manchester Metropolitan University, Damien Hughes. This episode of the Pace Performance Podcast is sponsored by Val Performance, the team behind the Nordboard hamstring testing system. So the Nordboard is the fastest and easiest, most accurate way to measure hamstring strength. So with the Nordboard, you'll get the right information to make the right decisions at the right time. If you want to check them out, you can check them out at valdeperformance.com. This episode of the Pace Performance Podcast is sponsored by Train With Push, creators of the Push Band. So the push band is the first scientifically validated uh, wearable device to provide objective insights into your performance in the gym. So using accelerometers and a gyroscope, the push band is able to use bar speed to regulate load and volume based on your ability in the gym on any given day. So you can use the push band to quickly establish uh, 1RMs with submaximal loads so you can plan with confidence. So the pushband portal also allows you to create programs before entering the gym uh, to make change on the fly depending on how you are performing on that given day. So you can customize everything from target velocity ranges to differentiating velocities for warm-up and creating working sets and supersets uh, for yourself or your athletes. So if you do want to know more about Train With Push and the pushband, get yourself over to trainwithpush.com. They also got a great blog, so you can catch up with some guest bloggers such as Mladen Ivanovic and Dan Baker. So be sure to check them out at trainwithpush.com. Hi guys, thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So really pleased this evening to get Damien Hughes, who is the Professor of Organisational Psychology and Change at uh, Manchester Met. So welcome to the podcast, Damien. Oh, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having I me. I got that job title right, didn't I? Yeah, just about, just yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So anyone that doesn't know who you are, uh, just want to give us a little bit of a background on uh, what you've done in the past and, and what you're currently doing. Yeah, of course. So um, I come from a boxing background, Rob, so uh, I've... Uh, run a or had to run a boxing club in uh, Manchester uh, um, all my life really so my dad was a elite level boxing coach and that's what I grew up in and that's what I worked in um, I then uh, worked as a football coach for a number of years um, for, I did a job off Manchester United um, and now I work um, in I do four different jobs effectively I um I, I, I do the organisational psychology and change role uh, that we just described. Um, I write books uh, very much around change and high-performing cultures. Uh, I run a consultancy that works in business and in sport. Um, and, and I still keep involved with the boxing as well. So what, uh, what role was it at United that you did? Was it in the academy? Coaching the academy? Uh, yeah, well, when I started, yeah, it was a it was a very very junior role uh, as a junior coach there at the academy. Yeah. <laughs> so, I read your as we were speaking before. I read one of your yeah. books, um, probably two thousand and twelve, after my non league 
kind of forward thinking manager bought about 15 of them to give out to the lads so it was the, oh, yeah. it was the, it was the first time that i'd read a book that almost made me reflect on what i was doing and there was space in the book for for uh, obviously writing answers to certain questions that were asked but as, yeah. how, how did the kind of the built the the title of the author how did you you know where did that come from that you, you wanted to write a book yeah, of course. Um, well, I'd never actually wanted to write a book. I'd never intended to do one. And uh, I was doing a uh, role where I was trying to help uh, an organisation get high perf- a high-performing culture in place. And um, I'd done a lot of work in terms of from my own academic background and my own background in sport to, to put in place initiatives to get these guys making that mindset shift to do it. And um, I was looking for a book that merely just reinforced the messages we've been given. And my issue was uh, was twofold. One, um, if it was too wishy-washy, these guys were too cynical, they were never going to pick up a book that, that, didn't have, that wasn't robust enough. But the robust books seemed to be a little bit too academic, which would also put them off. So I was in a dilemma in terms of what to give them to reinforce the messages. So the answer appeared obvious that I wanted to write my own. I, I thought it would be better to write my own. So I was literally so naive. I think if anyone would have ever sat me down and said, this is how you write a book, I would never have bothered. It would have appeared too difficult. But I literally set off with the idea that I wanted to write a book around um, the psychology of change and how you can change to deliver high performance. Um, And I decided what I was going to do was make a list of people that I liked and admired uh, and interview them along the way. And I worked on a on the basis that we're only over six degrees of separation from anyone. So I thought, whoever is on the list, I'll work out a way to get to see them. So it ended up being an 18-month, really quite a fun adventure. Um, I spent time with Sir Richard Branson and his family. Uh, went out to Atlanta, I interviewed Muhammad Ali, um, interviewed Ferguson at United. Just people that I liked, like heroes of mine, that I got to go and interview and talk to them about it. And that was where the first book, Liquid Thinking, uh, came in but then I self-published it so I published it just for this so again the idea was just to give it to the guys I was doing some work with um, but it got quite a lot of attention at the time so I um, eventually some publishers came along and acquired the rights to it in the book called Liquid Thinking and that was very much the start of it so that's about 14 years ago now that I did that um, wow. and you know, I'm really proud I've done, I've, I've, I've done 10 now. So um, it's, a, it's a real passion of mine to, to, like I love doing the research, love doing the interviews, I love sort of pursuing uh, avenues of thought and then going speaking to people that have really lived at the hard edge of it, who have, prepared, who have been really generous with a lot of the time and insights, especially on the psychology of how they do what they do. Mm-hmm. And th- I know this is a question that you've been asked a million times, but what are the commonalities sure. between the, 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 the kind of people that you've been speaking to? Yeah, um, it's a brilliant question, Rob. Um, I'd say what I've tried to do is I've got a, um, the new book that I've done probably sums up what the commonalities are. So um, what I've done is basically try and identify what are the features that all of these guys have in common. So regardless of their industry, regardless of the sport they might work in, regardless of their status or rank, who are the great coaches, the guys that make change happen, the guys that really deliver high performance over a sustained period? And I've identified there's five things. So the book's called The Five Steps. 
and the steps is just an acronym for what I've noted that these that these guys seem to do consistently across the board. So to summarise it, the, uh, the S of it is they're brilliant at simplifying things. So they've just got the ability to drill down and make things as simple and, and understandable as possible. So some examples of that, you know, there's, a, there's the famous story about when um, a couple of psychologists went and watched um, John Wooden, the, the famous basketball coach, doing a session. And that was their insight. They took one insight away from over a thousand hours of his coaching sessions. It was the simplicity of his messages. He said that no speech he ever gave lasted for longer than 20 seconds. Now, you look in other sporting leaders, like Alex Ferguson was renowned for being able to deliver a team talk in three words. You know, on one occasion, he walked in the room and said, lads, it's Tottenham and walked out <laughs> before one game. Uh, Jürgen Grobler, British rowing. You know, the whole culture of British rowing was about just ask, getting the athletes to ask themselves, will this make the boat go faster? And it's about how do you almost drill down uh, into a culture and summarise what you're about in a really simple, coherent way. The second uh, part of the acronym is the T bit, which stands for great coaches get people to think for themselves. So they're not spoon feeding, they just create an environment that get people to use their own natural intelligence to solve problems. So, um, and we've seen this, I mean, the education is battling the same thing, but we've seen that if you just spoon feed people, give them the answer, tell them what to do, when they come under pressure, they retain about 5% of the information. But when you get them to think for themselves and solve the problems themselves, they can retain up to about 75% of it. So what great coaches do is basically build in, um, the phrase I've, uh, I talk about is they build in tripwires, things that just get you out of your autopilot and force you to think for yourself. So Mourinho is a great example of this, where he uses the whole coaching technique of guided discovery. So he sets you a problem and then allows you to solve it in the, in the coaching sessions. But he plays a part of the opposition that basically keep trying to counter you and force you to think about it. The E part of the, uh, of the acronym is emotional intelligence. So the, the best coaches are the ones that just have that intuition for how people are feeling. And the best example uh, I had for that was uh, I did a book a number of years ago on a boxer, a guy called Thomas Hearns. And I went out to Detroit to, uh, to the Kronk gym where he sort of de uh, developed and then spent his career. And it was frightening. I mean, the, the environment of where the gym was based was quite intimidating just because of a lot of the so sort of social issues around it. And what fascinated me when I got into this environment was this is this gym, despite being in is like being quite intimidating, has produced over 20 world champions. And the question I asked the head coach there, a guy called Emmanuel Stewart, was how have you delivered such a phenomenal uh, record of success? And he used a lovely phrase that almost sums up the E part, the emotional intelligence part. He said, you always need to contain before you explain. He said, most coaches get it wrong. He said, but the great coaches have got this ability to contain the emotional part of your brain. And what he meant by that was, he said, he said, you could have the most talent in the world, but if you come into my environment and you think that I don't care about you or I don't love you or I have no interest in you or I'm going to humiliate you or you don't feel safe, you're incapable of listening to what I've got to give you. You're incapable of performing to your potential. 
And he said, but if I can contain that emotional brain and make you feel valued and secure and belong, your natural talent will take it, will take care of itself. So lots of coaches have got, you know, that like if you speak to anyone about great coaches, they don't always remember what they tell you, but they remember how you made them feel. The P part of it is the practical. I've never yet met uh, an elite coach that engages in sort of corporate bullshit or jargon to an extent. Because if there's a distinction between an expert and a novice, it's an expert has the ability to speak in abstract terms. So so they because they've been that well immersed and in, involved in uh, to their subject, they understand the intricacies and the nuances of it. But a novice doesn't have that level of insight. So what great coaches have got the ability to do is even though they might have like the ability to think about it, say five or 10 steps ahead of a novice, they can still explain it in novice terms. So they don't use jargon or, or abstract concepts to explain what they're doing. They always talk about it in really practical, concrete language. Um, and the final bit of the acronym is all, all great coaches are great storytellers. I think the two things go hand in hand with each other. So, you, you know, you'll often hear it. I know from your experiences, Rob, when we were talking earlier about, like, back in your non-league days when you were working in an environment like that, what was it we did? We were instantly telling stories about people we had in common. Because when we tell stories, you're taking uh, the learning from it and you're being able to assimilate it and take the really relevant points in a lot more of an accessible way. So we know that our brain learns more when it's when it's put within a context of a story. And that's what you find great coaches coach often by telling stories and getting people to almost step inside what is like a, a flight simulator of a certain scenario, but they can do it in the, in a safe way. So so when that with the emotional intelligence, when you told yeah. that story about the boxer, about the boxing yeah. coach, what did he do to to get to, to contain before he explained? Well, there's four things that all coaches do, and he did it as well. But we often talk about the foot. So I talk, so when I work in cultures, uh, with, and in any culture, whether this is sport, business, education, there are four things, the four pillars of emotional intelligence, what I call it. The first one is you create a sense of belonging. And what I mean by that is that our natural instinct is that we pack animals, that we want to feel that we that we fit in. That's our instinct. So what great coaches do is they create this sense of comradeship, this sense of we're all in it together. This teamship becomes really, really critical and fundamental. So they break down cliques very, very quickly because they understand how damaging and corrosive they can be. Now there's lots of ways you can do this. You have like this this unifying sense of purpose or you get everybody like Ferguson did it with the siege mentality at United but effectively what you're doing is you're bringing everybody into the same uh, into the same sort of area together and making sure that sense of belonging is key the second one is to create a sense of psychological safety now there's been all kinds of studies for this I've seen this in the hospitals for example where the best hospitals are the ones that also often have the highest mistake right and the reason that might sound counterintuitive, but the reason is, it's only because people feel safe enough that they can admit mistakes. So the more mistakes they are, actually, the better the hospital in reality, because they've got that psychological safety. Now, 
That's, so what I mean by that is, what great coaches never do is come in and hammer you for what you haven't done. They will always start by telling you what you have done well before they try and get you to understand how can you do something better, if that makes sense. So uh, that's the second one. The third pillar is they create a sense of value, which is linked to the safety bit, but they spend an awful lot of time telling you what you're good at. They go in and play to your strengths rather than to your weaknesses. They emphasize your qualities rather than your defects. And the fourth one is they give you a sense of control. Now we've seen this, there's a couple of professors uh, called Gary Locke, uh, Gary Locke and Edward Latham have done all kinds of studies in sport and in business. And what they found is when you give people an element of control over their own targets, they tend on average to be about 18% more effective than when targets are just imposed on them. Now, I often say this when I work in business and say, that's a day a week. So even if you want to be cynical about it, that potential uplift of 18% has got to be worth investigating in more detail. You know, like you often see the sense of control in terms of, like you'll know and your listeners will know in terms of when you go into any dressing room, you see people engaging in superstitions or little quirks, whether it's putting the kit on in a certain order or leaving the, or, you know, like walking out in a certain position. And that's often the, the emotional brain looking for, to establish some sense of control. When things start feeling out of control, you look for ways in which you can sort of try and consolidate and emphasize some degree of influence. So what great coaches do is they know the areas to give you that, that control and that, that authority. So it's those four pillars that are, that are key. And that's what I saw in Detroit. But equally, that's what I've been observing over the years with elite coaches and elite cultures, they tend to spend an awful lot of time investing in those areas. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned uh, Alex Ferguson quite a few times. Obviously, he's been a sure. a massive uh, influence on, on what you've done, obviously, hence the book. What, yeah. what, obviously, spending time with him on the inside and getting getting to know him, obviously not always seeing the press conference for five minutes after a, a game. Sure. What, what did you, what would the kind of, underlying qualities that you saw of, of him as a man as well as him as a coach? Um, I mean, I'd, so first of all, I'd hesitate to say that I know Ferguson yeah. particularly well at all. So, But I, I did do a book um, called How to Think Like Alex Ferguson a couple of years ago where I was lucky enough to speak to people that are far better qualified to answer that question than what I'd say I am. So I think I, I can answer on their behalf if you like. yeah. yeah. Um, and when I asked the question, not dissimilar to you, the, the overwhelmingly popular answer people would give me was that he came across as a decent human being, first and foremost, you know, and, and that's something that just doesn't, that doesn't fit with the sort of popular view that we have of him. But then equally, when people challenge that, I always say, well, do you believe everything you read in the papers? And the answer would be, well, no, of course I don't. So he said, well, why would you believe that? Alex, the cartoon version that you that you subscribe to on Alex Ferguson, giving the hairdryer and being some kind of belligerent bully, would really be be an accurate portrayal. Now, the simple answer is stories of Ferguson losing his temper are far more newsworthy than stories of him being fundamentally a decent human being. And but the amount of people that told me personal stories about where you know they could speak to him years later. And he'd still remember the kids' names, or he'd ask about the parents, or he had an interest in the human being first, and the football the second, is the thing that 
seems to distinguish him. But again, equally, it seems to distinguish all the great coaches. You know, I it, so I interviewed uh, Angelo Dundee, who was Muhammad Ali's coach, and I interviewed him a long time ago. And he 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 sort of pulled me up short when I said to him, "You coach boxers," and he said, "No, I don't." He said, "I coach people to box," and it's and it's a subtle distinction, but it's a powerful one when you realise you're dealing with human beings first and foremost. That that always frames the way that you're likely to interact with them. So just on the back of that, when it comes to, <clears throat> as, we, as we discussed before we've, with previous guests, it's, it's often come back to the word culture. Yeah. Through your kind of experience, how would, you, how would people go about creating that culture? And it's, it's a, a day after, you know, it's not even 24 hours after England's got knocked out of the, uh, yeah. the Euros. And that's what people are questioning, not, not just the, the 11 guys on the pitch and ultimately, unfortunately, the manager, yeah. but the, the depth of that culture and the, the leadership and the, the people that maybe you don't see on the TV. From your experience, how would, not using that as an example because that's, that's a crude example, but how would you go about kind of um, advising people on creating that, that deep-rooted culture? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, I hope, uh, the, I hope it is accurate that, that we're not just going to go down the route after the, our failure in the European Championships, that we don't just do the usual try and tested route of find a scapegoat, in this case Roy Hodgson, sack him, bring some charismatic new coach in and assume that everything's uh, going to be fine again. You know, I often quote, there's a stat that when Van Hal failed as uh, the Dutch coach in the first time, so when he quit in 2002, he made a really interesting observation that I think he's worth bearing in mind in the sort of context that he claimed then, when he reflected on their failure to qualify for the World Cup in 2002, that a coach can only influence a team's performance by about 10%. So he believed he can either improve it or decrease it by about 10%. So a large part of what he was about was about how did he maximise his 10% of influence. So, he, so he'd think of a lot of ways in which the way he could try and communicate better or the way he could try and deliver his message uh, or his tactics in a more effective way. And I think if that's true for somebody that's done the job and failed and then been successful as he was at the last World Cup, I think it's worth bearing in mind about Roy Hodgson that we can demonise him, we can sort of criticise him for what he did, but actually the problems lie a lot deeper in it and it goes back to that very point you made, Rob, which is it's about culture. It's always about culture. You put, like, you, like think of it yourself. If, so if you were to start a job and you start it and one of your hallmarks in terms of your behaviour is you're passionate and you're enthusiastic and I was to send you to go into work in a department of real cynical bastards, people that just love to complain or love to tell you what's wrong or the worst things about it, I guarantee within a six-week period, you will dilute your levels of enthusiasm and passion a lot quicker than you will raise the standards of the people that come in. Because this is one of the things I said earlier about the way that we're, we're wired to belong. We're pack animals by nature. This is why... Now, evolutionary psychologists will tell you a lot more detail about this, but one of our early lessons and our evolutionary journey was you don't go hunting on your own because that's where, because you're basically exposing yourself and making yourself vulnerable. So we learn very quickly to hunt in packs or in tribes. So that's why like, religion is such a central pillar of every civilization. 
right the way through to data, things like Facebook, where we identify the kind of groups we want to belong to, or we do it for our football or our sports teams in different ways, or and that, you know, the European referendum at the minute is about polarizing people into different camps and things like that. So we're naturally inclined to want to belong. And what a country is about is saying, well, what, so what do you have to do to belong? So if you take that question right to its, its, its genesis, what a culture is about effectively is how do you behave? What are the acceptable behaviors in, uh, in, in your group or in, uh, for membership of that organization? So the question I always start when I work with any team in this is to say, is, is, is to ask them, well, what are the behaviors? And some organizations seem to know this quite well. Some teams may struggle with it, but we're all capable of answering it. Where the phrase I use is to say, what are our trademark behaviors? So not only what are our behaviors, but what are the behaviors that are most critical, that are non-negotiable? What are the things that buy you a membership of, uh, of, uh, of, this, of this team? And when you can identify them and you get them really clearly understood and you hold people to account for it, there's a really crude term that people talk about, and I know it's a it's a it's a term that you, uh, that your listeners might have heard in sport. So, what the FIFO effect kicks in, where people either choose to then fit into that culture, or they fuck off from it. They fuck, or, or, or if you want to be politer, they, get, uh, they find a way out. But 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 you can only do that when the behaviours are defined. So the phrase I use, as I said, is I talk about trademark behaviours. So I'll give you a good example. I was lucky enough, I've been friends um, with um, with a couple of really quite elite uh, rugby league coaches over the years. One of them, Tony Smith. Um, we've worked together at, at Leeds Rhinos, then with England, and I went in, uh, to Warrington with him for the first five years. And when we went into Warrington, that was the question we asked our players there. What? So the first question is, how would you define yourself? And um, they, it was a bit of a mixed bag. They hadn't won for a long time. They'd had a bit of a of a tough time. And the players effectively told us that they were talented, but they were erratic. They said that they felt like uh, they could be a little bit more professional. But they felt that they were um, that when things went against them, their resilience wasn't so high. Things like that. So we asked them, how did they want to be perceived instead? What were the trademark behaviours that they wanted to be renowned for? And very quickly, they identified three. First one was professionalism. The second one was mental toughness. And the third one was they wanted to be renowned as a team that stuck together. So what we did was we then said to them, right, so how do we make these behaviours become a reality? So... The first thing we did was we got the players to score themselves because you have to raise their awareness. You have to know how uh, how they score. And what we found is that some of our um, better players or more highly decorated players, ones that scored themselves, say, nine or ten on the scale of behaviours, what was interesting was their perception amongst the dressing room because for a couple of them, the scores were around five or four or five. So we had an issue there in terms of how they perceived themselves versus how they were being perceived by the group. So what we had to do was work with those individuals to get them to see that maybe they were being truthful, but people weren't observing the behaviours that they were demonstrating. So then we had to work with them to say, so either they, they demonstrate the behaviours a little bit more, or maybe they needed to raise their standards 
as leaders, as highly decorated players, they needed to raise their standards and demonstrate those behaviours uh, in, in a more obvious way. And what we found in that case there was that we kept 90% of the same group, but we were able to um, really start to deliver quite high-level um, behaviours that manifested itself in results. So I'll give you a really simple example the players came up with. They identified that if we were serious about one of our trademark behaviours being uh, we stuck together, they were the only team I've ever seen do this. But whenever we used to walk out of the tunnel, they refused to walk onto the field until they, they were all gathered. So they never walked out on the field in a single file. They would always walk out onto the pitch in a pack at half time. They wouldn't run in individually. They'd gather in the centre circle and run back in together as a pack. And they'd do it. Because to them, that was a manifestation of the behavior, of the trademark behaviour they wanted to embody, which was, we stick together. There's no individuals in this team. We're a unit that work together. So there's lots of ways it can start to take life and, and you see ways that it can really come, come into being in a culture. But you can't create a culture until you know what the behaviours are, is the, is the essence of the point I'm making. So what was your, what was your role at official title at Warrington? <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, I'd probably say it was a coaching consultant in that uh, in uh, in that regard, but that's only for one of trying to explain it in a better way. Of course. So, um, it, it, uh, but my, the role I do, or the role I enjoy doing in sport, is working with the coaches and the support staff rather than necessarily with the players. And the reason I say that is not that I don't work with the players, but I think the coaching and support staff are the ones with credibility in any in uh, in any sporting organisation because they're the ones that that determine your day to day the players' day to day lives and the coaches determine whether you're in the team or not. So my interest is working with them to almost equip them with some of these ideas and skills to be able to implement them rather than try and be the guy that 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 leads it up myself. You know, I, I mean, I have done that, and at Warrington, and at Warrington, for example, and previous with Tony. Um, I mean, we're friends first and foremost, so I was lucky that he trusted me that the messages that I would give were going to be entirely consistent with any message that he would be issuing himself. But that came over a long period of time, and that came through the strength of our relationship rather than rather than anything else. Mm-hmm. So one thing we chatted about beforehand was this this idea of of being linked to a manager, and ideas yeah. been been diluted because of the nature, of, predominantly the nature of sport and the fact that you can be yeah. kind of gone within the well twenty minutes after a game, like Roy Hodgson. Yeah. Um, but then obviously you were friends with the manager at Warrington. Yeah. Well, just just using that as an example. Did, Maybe, maybe not yourself, but what are your ideas re- regarding that? Regarding the, the so one member of the support staff or the whole support staff being linked to that head coach or manager, and, and what potentially is the downfalls of that? Yeah, I've seen it in terms of. I think, um, um, I do understand it. You know, and I know that you know this better than, than anyone else. That sport can be a fickle, a fickle business, and so. I understand that people, when they become aligned to a, a particular coach or a particular organisation, um, there's, a, there's a level of security and that's great. But I also think there's a danger to that as well because I often say that in any culture, you can often see people fall into two categories. 
and the phrase I was, we were talking about earlier was people can either very quickly become time tellers or truth tellers is a phrase that I use and what I mean by that is I saw this when so the boxing club that I've been involved in for a long time I see this in boxing for example where I remember years ago my dad had a, had a young boxer that he, he developed from being a kid and a, a lad called Michael Gomez uh, he was a super featherweight and British champion and won a European title and you get a lot of hangers-on, a lot of uh, time-tellers in boxing, you know, in the entourage. And this Michael Gomez, for example, he had people that wanted to be associated with him because he was having a fair level of success. And these guys tell the boxers everything that they want to hear rather than what they need to hear. They tell them they're great, even when they've not been. They tell them that, that they look fantastic, even when it's obvious that they haven't. They convince them that they can get away with shortcuts, even though... That's not necessarily the case and because these guys want to be part of the inner circle. I remember Michael Gomez had a fight against some Mexican kid and it was a, a warm-up fight for a European title. So it was just seen as a fight designed to tick over. And everything we'd heard in the build-up to the fight was the Mexican had come over, I think it was November, so it must have been freezing from coming over here to the UK. And it was obvious from everything we'd heard was that he didn't particularly fancy it. And yet, when we got on the, in the ring on the night, one of these um, entourage, one of these uh, time-tellers that I'm describing, carried the belt into the ring. And when he carried the belt into the ring, he started making sort of threatening, throat-cutting gestures to the Mexican kid who was waiting in his corner for Gomez to arrive. And I distinctly remember looking in this Mexican's eyes, and you could see that this sort of resolve started to come into it as he was being insulted by this hanger-on and made to look a bit of a fool. You could see that he obviously resolved that he wasn't going to put up with that. And he ended up giving Michael Gomez one of the toughest 12-round fights that he'd ever had in his career, which was never what we actually needed in this particular fight. And so I could see the dangers of when you allow too many people into your corner that want to tell you their time rather than tell you the truth, if that makes sense. They wouldn't be associated with it for the wrong reasons. So where the sort of phrase comes from is with the idea of time talents is I say, I've, I've worked with coaches that have had uh, support staff that do this. So in a game, when they're looking for advice or for somebody to offer an opinion, these are the guys that will tell you that you know, there's 20 minutes left. And my view is any, like, anyone can tell you the time. That's the easiest role in the world, just to be able to tell you how long it is or how many substitutions you've got left. What the best cultures have are truth tellers. People that all, and when I say truth, I'm not saying that they're right, but somebody that will challenge your thinking or will or throw in different ideas to generate debate or get people discussing points. And I think the value of those guys can be incredible. And that's why, I mean, that's part of the nature of the role that I do, that, um, I try, you know, we were saying it earlier that I think my value can be coming into teams um, occasionally, but not necessarily being there every day of the week, because I think it, my role requires somebody to be a little bit more detached from that, who doesn't have the level of dependency that, that other people necessarily have on being in that role and, and making sure that their job is safe and secure. Mm -hmm. Interesting. 
So just just one well one last thing that um, I kind of want to discuss and and something that we haven't had on the podcast is someone that's been so involved in something maybe not completely uh, detached from sport but involved with business. Yeah. In a, in a very global um, question, what can what can sport learn from from business from your experience? I mean, that's a brilliant question, Rob. I mean, because I often hear it the other way. I often hear business yeah. people coming on from sport. And my answer to whenever I say that to businesses, I say, well, just be just be a little bit more circumspect about what you can learn from it. Because and the reason I say that is because in sport, employment law doesn't necessarily always get the level <laughs> of respect. So, so, so if, you know, people can get rid of you at the drop of a hat in some of the more high-profile sports, um, and I say this to business, I say, where you don't have that luxury to be able to do that. So at that at that very point, any parallels start to come apart at the seams. But when it comes to dealing with people, I think that's where the two worlds have got an awful lot to teach each other, both sports to business and business to sport. Um, and I think it's more around the, the focus on culture. I think being being really quite focused on making sure that get your culture right and bring good people within to a culture and it can sustain itself. You know, I think businesses can often go down the route of um, looking for the short-term fix as well, you know, like replaces uh, the chief exec and see if we get some kind of balance in it. I think the idea of that strive for continuous improvement, that idea of looking for how, so how do we get better, having the willingness to look outside your own industry, uh, for examples, or your own sport. I mean, I think there's three common mistakes that 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 you'll see being made in in cultures that struggle. First of all, there's uh, the drive for results, results, results. So when you base your self-esteem or your success just on the results that you get, I think that can be a dangerous thing. So a lot of businesses, you know, I think we've seen this in the banking sector in the last decade or so. Just hit your numbers. And I think what that encourages is unethical behaviour. Because as long as you're hitting your numbers and and getting the big bonuses, don't worry about the collateral damage that that happens in the wake of it. So I think you see like British Cycling, the idea of focus on the process, get the process right and and the outcome will take care of itself. I think that's one big thing. The second thing, the second mistake we see being made is um, um, is what the like the Latin phrase for it, it sounds a bit grand, but is Merasmus, the idea of learned helplessness. Learned helplessness can take place in big organisations where people believe that I'm just a cock in a wheel, I don't really have much influence, and will quickly start to um, give up rather than try and shape a culture. I think sport gives you some great examples of where having that doggedness and that resilience can, uh, can make a difference. I think the final mistake that a lot of businesses make that sport that they can learn from is this idea of being quite myopic. Um, a lot of businesses believe that they can only learn from other businesses or their industry contains the answers. Whereas I think if you get your head up and start having a look at the bigger picture, start having the courage to explore other worlds, other sports, other industries, you'll often find some really quite fascinating learnings that you can take and apply to your own. And I think as we, again, we was talking about earlier, you look at the best sports, they've got that constant striving to to learn and pick the brains of others. 
the worst sports tend to be quite insular and focused just on themselves. Is there any specific examples from the business world that could be um, you could give that kind of sport could uh, could tap into? Yeah, I. Um, the example I talk about, um, or that I would quote for, for you here, is um, there was a brilliant article years ago by a guy called Theodore Levitt in the Harvard Business Review. And he talks about this idea of marketing myopia. And what he means by that is that he, he tells the story of the kerosene industry in the 19th century. So then in the 19th century, if you were one of the leaders in the kerosene industry, you were like the Bill Gates of your day. You were just the, like a, a wealthy industrialist because kerosene was what we used to, for our gas lights and things like that. And when he, Theodore Levitt gets extracts from interviews with these guys and he says, well, what do you do? Their answer is always, we're in the kerosene industry. We make kerosene, we're in the, we produce kerosene. By the 1930s, if you were a leader of the kerosene industry, you were pretty much bankrupt. You were extinct and irrelevant from that moment on. And the answer is why is because Thomas Edison at Menlo Park was coming up with the way of introducing mass illumination on a grand scale. And the kerosene industry missed it. So gas lamps weren't required in the same volumes anymore because uh, mass electricity was, uh, was on its way. And what marketing myopia says is, if those kerosene leaders would have would have seen themselves not as being leaders of the kerosene industry, but have been in the illumination industry, they'd have been funding Thomas Edison at Menlo Park, and they'd have been at the vanguard of just adapting and innovating. Now, you go into any failing culture, you'll see the same myopia existing. So you look at a, a modern-day example, say the post office in this country, in, here in the UK, where it's pretty much seen as struggling uh, to justify its relevance in the modern world. And the answer is, is because they viewed for years, the leaders of the post office viewed themselves in the delivering letters industry. When if they had taken a step back and said, actually, we're in the communication game, they'd have been at the forefront of introducing email and the other digital um, communication to us. And they'd have been able to do it in a way that they could have controlled the market so I suppose the lesson that we can learn there is sometimes having the willingness to, to reinvent, having the courage to not just keep doing what you're doing, but step back and just revise what you're doing and ask yourself, can we do this better? Can we improve on it? It's something that sport does that the that business could really adapt and learn from. Very interesting. Well, I'm just, again, like every week, I'm just conscious of time, but you've got oh, the... I You've got the book out on the 13th of July. That's right. Is that yeah. correct? Where can people yeah. get hold of it? Uh, it's on Amazon. I think Amazon's the easiest way. Um, th that's the best way to do it. Um, there's a book launch in Manchester um, the, on the 13th of July at Waterstones. If people want to come along, I think tickets are, um, I think they're nearly sold out. So if you contact the bookstore there, and I think there's another proposed one due to take place in London in September. But Amazon's the best buy or, you know, people are welcome. If people want to get in touch with any questions about it, uh, I have a website called liquidthinker.com. People are welcome to drop me a line there and uh, I'm more than happy to pick up and answer any questions about the book as well, Rob. And you've got, you've got Twitter as well. Come up with some, uh, some funny little, little bits and bobs. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't actually understand Twitter. I was advised a few years ago to, uh, to get on it. So I sort of 
racked my brains for a long time trying to think of well, what did he actually say? It just yeah. seems so inane. So uh, <laughs> I don't post anything in terms of uh, like this is what I've had for my tea. This is what I'm in. Uh, I just you know I read pretty voraciously when I'm doing the research, so I just try and share insights or quotes from people I'm meeting that I've got something interesting to say or anything I've read that I think might be of interest to people. So uh, it's pretty eclectic, but uh, it seems a, it seems a fun way of just sort of sharing some of those insights because that's really my interest. I wouldn't, my interest is about helping people and cultures just to improve in their own way, not telling them what to do, but getting them to think and identify it. So again, you know, that's why I've loved coming on here. I appreciate you, the invitation and it's the same for any of your listeners as well. I hope they found it interesting. And if they've, I've got any questions, I'm happy to uh, to help try and answer them or clarify. No, that's great, mate. I, I really appreciate your time. So are you at are you Liquid, Liquid Thinker on Twitter as well? You know? Yes, I am. Yeah, okay. that's me, yeah, Liquid Thinker. Yeah. Perfect. I mean, what's what people ask, they say, why don't we call it Liquid Thinker? Well, Many years ago now, about 15 years ago, when I was trying to think of a name from a business, I say, it's a multiple choice uh, question, this one. So the first one is, Edward de Bono, the creativity guru, says that uh, 90% of the mistakes you make in life are what we call through solid thinking, that inability to see things from a different angle. So I thought, liquid thinking, it's the opposite of it. Then you see what I'm trying to do. The second uh, multiple choice answer that you could decide is that I was actually setting the pub would be made when we were trying to come on the title. <laughs> now the answer is both of them are true. <laughs> the more realistic one is I was setting the pub would be made. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's been it's been great to chat to you. Um, oh, I've loved it, Rob. Thanks for having me. Thank no, I re- really appreciate your time, and we'll uh, we'll catch up soon. Yeah, look forward to it. Thank you. Cheers, right, mate. Well, cheers, mate. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 94 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Just before I let you go, just want to say a massive thanks to both Valve Performance and Train With Push for sponsoring episode 94 today. So got got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks, uh, building up to the big 100, so hopefully got a um, something special for you uh, for, for number 100, so that's something to look forward to. Um, Thanks again for tuning in. Really appreciate your support. If you have enjoyed the podcast so far, if you'd be so kind enough to get over to iTunes and leave an honest rating review, that'd be really appreciated. Just make sure the podcast gets out to, um, to more and more people. So would really appreciate that. So thanks for tuning in and I will speak to you in episode 95.